How We Got Here with Christina Best and Christopher McClellan. Brought to you by Anthem. You're listening to How We Got Here. I'm Christopher McClellan and I'm joined by my favorite co-host, Christina Best. Hey, Christina. It's such an honor to be your favorite of all the dozens of co-hosts you've had. All the dozens. Let me let me count the ways. So. Well, I personally cannot believe that we are already nearing the end of uh, a second season. Second season, and we're already planning for season three. Yeah, I've got some ideas. <laughs> I'm very excited. We got to get through the holidays first. The holidays. So, Christina, do you know that I'm going to Spain and Portugal for the holidays? You'd mentioned it, but I, I didn't realize uh, the trip was happening at the holiday season. How long are you going to be be gone? Well, I'm going to be gone a month or a lifetime, but I, you know, I'm going to be aging gayfully. Well, I love there. that for you. I hope yeah. that I can come visit, <laughs> especially yeah. if it's well, the we'll latter. Have more on that, we'll have <laughs> we'll have more on that at a, at a later date. But uh, as we like to say, if you like today's conversation, and why wouldn't you? Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing how we got here podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. So, Christina, will you do the honors and introduce our guest? I've had the pleasure of meeting our guest a couple of times, and it's just a delightful to have him on today. Couldn't agree more, Chris. Social impact advocacy has been central to the life's work of Dr. Nee Cordelai Corte. He serves AARP's diverse membership, including over a million LGBTQ plus members, as the organization's senior advisor and national LGBTQ liaison. This work has given Dr. Corte a rich canon of resources to pull from when, in 2019, he found himself in the role of long-distance caregiver following his older brother's stroke and, in 2020, following his mother's parathyroid cancer diagnosis. So undoubtedly, we're going to be unpacking all of that in today's episode. So welcome. Welcome, doctor. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Chris. It's really an honor to be here, and especially during... National Caregiving Month, month of November. It's really great to to share my story and to share the story of how AARP is showing up for caregivers across the country. Absolutely. Couldn't think of a better way to celebrate the month than with someone like yourself. So I'm going to ask you, as we ask all our guests, how did you get here? How did I get here? (laughs) Oh, my. I got to AARP really following my heart and doing uh, the community work that I deeply enjoy. Activism is not just something I do, but it's an extension of who I am. And, you know, I have the privilege of being able to sort of channel my, my activism through my day job at AARP as Senior Advisor and National LGBTQ Liaison. Before AARP, I worked for the American Heart Association on Uh, state and local public policy campaigns, addressing some of the root causes of childhood obesity across the country, you know, and before that had done work in in, on a number of other social and economic uh, justice issues. And so it's sort of a natural step to, you know, be at AARP and doing this work on behalf of our nation's older adults and seniors. But I don't necessarily think about it in those terms every day. I think about it in terms of advancing longevity as a justice issue. And, you know, these days I am doing my part to connect the dots and to help the folks that are working on youth issues, the folks that are working on senior issues and a whole range of issues 
in between to understand that we're all in this together and that we can't have success for our youth if we don't have success for our seniors. And so that's the mindset that got me here. Well, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit more about some of those formative experiences from you know childhood, young adulthood, up until now that inspired you to work in advocacy? Great question. Um, so, you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was the youngest of five boys born to a Ghanaian immigrant. That was my father. And my mom grew up in the Jim Crow South. And they migrated to California after meeting in college in Texas. And so at our dinner table, there was a a healthy global perspective on a whole range of issues. And I had the kind of dad that would call me in from playing outside and and say, you know, hey, son, you know, you need to watch this on C-SPAN. Or (laughs) my dad would take me to public lectures at UC Berkeley from time to time growing up. And so I always grew up feeling like a citizen of the world. Uh, and feeling like I had uh, a responsibility to do my part to shape the future in a positive way. So it was those experiences growing up. It was being a student organizer in middle school and getting the attention of Oprah Winfrey and being a guest on the Oprah show and being recognized for my service to community, helping to raise money to send deserving young people to college. It was, you know, at the age of seven, going to the Oakland Coliseum to hear Nelson Mandela speak. Imagine that, being seven years old and Nelson Mandela's on his world tour. One of the stops is near your hometown. And uh, without knowing the fullness of his story, I was mesmerized by Nelson Mandela's ability to bring people together, to demonstrate hope, to practice forgiveness, and to envision uh, a bigger, better, bolder future for the people of South Africa, and people of conscience around the world. And so those are really the most formative early experiences that put me on the trajectory that I'm on. And they underscore the rigor and the passion and the seriousness that I bring to this advocacy work that that couldn't be more important now uh, than it ever has been. What meld so perfectly there, uh, doctor, is advocacy and caregiving go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. And uh, another thing that struck me here is, uh, I've been thinking about this since you said it in your introduction, longevity as a justice issue. Uh, That is very profound. I'd love for you to kind of expound on that a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, from our own AARP research, we know that Of the 48 million family caregivers are caring for an adult in the U.S., about 8% self-identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and or queer questioning, LGBTQ. And this is information that we didn't have before. I often say no data, no justice. You know, if we don't see historically marginalized groups represented in the data that we use to make decisions and to develop programs and to develop public policies and Uh, standards and practices, then uh, it's no wonder why some of these historically marginalized groups, including but not limited to Black folks and LGBTQ folks, among others, it's no wonder why people feel like they don't belong or where folks are made to feel like a threat of some sort. And so I am 
you know, really inspired by the opportunity to shape the future in terms of how we talk about and how we address uh, issues related to longevity. I think the pandemic has really exposed widening disparities. It has really, you know, exposed some of the, quite frankly, the the structural racism, among other isms that we see. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? If we leave this pandemic at some point operating exactly the same way as we did before, you know, then I think we will have missed a golden uh, opportunity to shape the future. And so uh, I know there are so many of us at AARP that feel that way. Uh, We feel that our mission is more important now than it's ever been. That means that we've got to also operate differently and we've got to work with partners that maybe we hadn't worked as closely with before. I think there's an opportunity to elevate aging as we see the diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape growing, as we see sort of a growing consciousness around diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, just as we think about people of color and LGBTQ folks and people with disabilities, we should also think about uh, older adults and seniors. And in doing that, uh, we think that we can shape a future that uh, will be positive uh, and uplifting for uh, all of us and not some of us. So if you could wave a magic wand, how would we create uh, a more, I guess, age-friendly society? but particularly as it relates to uh, underserved communities or members of the LGBTQ community, as that all relates back to getting older? If I could wave a a magic wand, uh, I would make it so we're not just talking the talk, but we're walking the walk. And I'll give you some examples of how AARP is walking the walk right now as we speak. Our advocacy team has been busy at work, uh, really shaping the future through uh, the infrastructure bills that are being debated on the Hill. You know, we know, for example, that hearing, vision, and dental benefits through Medicare are critically important, and we're certainly lifting our voices in support of those sorts of provisions uh, in the legislation. We know that paid family leave would make a material difference in the lives of people, and we're certainly lifting our voices in support of those provisions. You know, we know that giving Medicare the authority to be able to negotiate with drug companies to lower the cost of prescription drugs. We know that that would make a material difference uh, in the lives of our members and older adults everywhere. And so if I could wave a magic wand, we would be doing more of exactly what we're already doing. And that is putting our values into action, putting our values into legislation, you know, changing the laws, changing the rules by which we govern uh, ourselves uh, so that all people, particularly older adults and seniors of color, are able to uh, live with dignity. So LGBTQ older adults are able to live with dignity. I think there's something about living with dignity that lends itself to longevity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know this is uh, this is kind of a you know, very important area for me too, especially as I get ready to apply for Medicare in February. Well, actually, it's this month I have to apply because I turned 65 in, in February. But I look back over the last uh, 10 years, especially as it relates to caregiving and specifically LGBT caregiving, now that there's statistics. Because statistics are important because it helps back up the stories that we all have from our experience. And it's the stories that 
help change lives and opinions. That's right. That's right. I mean, statistics are critically important. And, you know, there's some LGBTQ caregiving research that uh, we're preparing to release from our public policy institute. And, you know, one of the things that we learned that I think might blow people's hair back a little bit, and I'm bald, and so when I say blow people's hair back, um, bald people feel <laughs> I, too. I get it. I get it. Anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> on, on average, uh, LGBTQ family caregivers of adults are 42 and a half years old. 42 and a half years old. LGBTQ caregivers are more likely to be younger than those who do not identify as LGBTQ by about eight years. And more than half of LGBTQ caregivers are white, but one in five, one in five identify as African-American or Black, like myself. One in 10 are Hispanic Latino, 3% are Asian Pacific Islander, right? And so we need to make sure that as we're developing tips, tools, and resources for family caregivers, that we're doing so in a way that is culturally aware, that is culturally relevant based upon the, the lived experience of who caregivers really are. And so, you know, that's why I want to encourage, you know, anybody who's listening that, that, that needs tools and resources as a caregiver, go to aarp.org forward slash caregiver, and you can uh, download our caregiving guides, our prepare to care guide that uh, meets you where you're at. And there are guides that are even more culturally uh, specific based upon what community you're, you're a part of. I'm very proud that, that we've worked with uh, SAGE. We work very closely with SAGE, which is you know, a 40-year-old legacy organization that's been uh, fighting for LGBTQ seniors for over 40 years. Uh, we're proud to have worked with them to develop an LGBTQ prepare to care guide, a caregiving guide. Folks can go to aarp.org forward slash pride uh, if they want to get that specific resource. A lot of you know younger caregivers don't know where to turn. And so um, I hope that the folks that are listening to this can guide them towards us. Yes, you don't have to be 50 plus in order to get the resources that you need to care for uh, your loved ones who may be younger than 50 or older than 50. That's why it's called Prepare to Care, because nobody has caregiving on their bucket list of things to do. And we can prepare for it early on, no matter what age, everybody's in a better position. So before you started working for ARP, was caregiving on your radar? What did you think about caregiving? Did you know what it was? Yeah. So before working for AARP, caregiving was on my radar because there were a number of family members uh, that had cared for older family members. And I didn't necessarily know it specifically as caregiving um, as much as I thought of it as, you know, just sort of being a dutiful, you know, son or daughter, niece or nephew. The values I was raised with is that you know, we care for each other. And so I've seen so many demonstrations of that in my own family, so many demonstrations of that among my friends. But it wasn't until I came to work at ARP where I developed an understanding of just sort of how vast this community is of family caregivers and how oftentimes they're doing the best they can and it's hard for them to be in community with one another because any spare time that they have is usually dedicated to caring for that loved one. And so I am um, encouraged that as we sit here today, there, there is so much more conversation about 
how we can, as a country, better support family caregivers, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, through tax credits like the Credit for Caring tax credit that AARP is supporting on the Hill and tax credits that we're supporting in states across the country, among other things. And so I just think it's, it's marvelous that, you know, we are shining a light on the lived experience of family caregivers. And more importantly, we're talking about how can we make their lives a little bit easier? How can we make the lives of the people that they're caring for uh, a little bit easier? How can we improve long-term care uh, supportive services? You know, we know at AARP, for example, in our Maintaining Dignity study, uh, that over two-thirds of LGBTQ uh, folks, 45-plus that we surveyed, you know, feared verbal harassment, physical harassment, and neglect in a long-term care setting. That is a challenge. And, you know, because sometimes family caregivers, you know, burn out or the challenges of their, that their loved ones are facing become so great that they have to entertain the possibility, the idea of their loved one getting that care in a long-term care setting. It's part of the reason why um, we're encouraged by the work, again, of partners like SAGE and the Human Rights Campaign, who have led the charge in developing a long-term care index. It's not out to the public yet. They're still building it. But, you know, that's going to be another resource that I think is going to be helpful, particularly to LGBTQ caregivers and people that are LGBTQ that are in need of long-term care supportive services in a safe environment. They don't have to fear discrimination or they don't have to fear uh, having their dignity impeded in any way, shape, or form. For me, when in my role as an LGBT caregiver, you certainly hit on all the concerns because it comes down to dignity. When you're in the middle of caring for somebody, you don't want to have to worry about somebody else's personal issues about, about who you are. You want to be able to focus on that advocacy for that person that's entrusted in your care whether it's a long-term partner, spouse, or if it's somebody that you, you know, that you're, that you're hired to work for and take care of. You know, the last thing you want to worry about is being discriminated against in the midst of caring for somebody else. That's right. And especially if you have managed to overcome a lifetime of discrimination. I mean, you know, we just celebrated a few years ago the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And right. one of the things that I so often hear, you know, in community talking to 50 plus LGBTQ folks is that a lot of them didn't plan to get old. I mean, this is the generation that didn't just lead an uprising at Stonewall and Compton Cafeteria and so many locations across the country and around the world. Uh, but this was uh, a generation, you know, that also had to contend with the HIV AIDS pandemic and saw a lot of ugliness. Right. You know, they saw a lot of their friends and loved ones die without dignity. They saw a response from leaders in our society that was short of what was needed to meet the moment. And here they are, flash forward 2021, in some ways the COVID-19 pandemic has been triggering for them. It has been another reminder of the importance of preparing to age uh, with right. great and with dignity. It's not just about going to the gym and eating right and 
building a supportive network of friends and loved ones. It's not just about that. It's about financial security. It is about health security. It is about our equal protection under the law. AARP, I'm proud that we endorse the Equality Act, uh, which is still sitting in the United States Senate. We endorse the, the Equality Act not once, but twice. You know, we were on the right side of history, our foundation litigation team, in addressing the discrimination that was laid out in plain view in the Bostock versus Clayton County decision uh, that came out of the Supreme Court uh, not too long ago. And so rooting out discrimination is going to be key as we as we move forward. It's 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 essential, you know, if we're serious about protecting the dignity of all of us. And you know what's interesting about the this is caregiving in and of itself is is a level playing field. There it's non-discriminatory. Caregiving impacts everybody. It might impact people differently, but everybody has a caregiving story. And that caregiving story by telling it allows people to not only know that other person differently, it makes people realize that in a lot of cases, we're, you know, we're really not that different. We want, all just want to be able to love and care for the person that's entrusted our, in our care with as and I'll, I'll use a kind of a gay term here with as little drama as possible. <laughs> There's plenty of drama to go around. I don't think gays have there's plenty of, the market on there's drama. There's plenty of, and that happens on its own, but, uh, but, I, but you get it. I yeah, do. I do. I do. And, you know, and just as you said that, I'm thinking about just some of the, the personal experiences I've had with caregiving during the pandemic. My older brother, you know, suffered a stroke and hat tip to his wife, my sister-in-law, Eileen, uh, who was his primary caregiver, who did an extraordinary job. Uh, she's an occupational therapist. And so her skill set came in really handy in helping him to get on the healing path and continue. Our mother was diagnosed with parathyroid cancer last August. And so far, so good. She's uh, on the healing path and cancer-free. But, you know, these are scary, scary times. It's scary enough when you get the phone call that your loved one has suffered a health event or has received a diagnosis and you know you don't know where things are going to go from there. That already creates a, a level of uncertainty and anxiety. And so anything we can do to chip away at the other things that may add to that anxiety, fear of discrimination, fear of not being able to take off from work to care for them, fear of right. you know not financially being able to fill in gaps, anything we can do to chip away at those other things that that create anxiety. Uh, those are the things that, that we want to do. And that's what our focus um, is at AERP. It's not just us. You know, there are lots of other advocacy groups that are out there leading the charge. And more importantly, there are individual family caregivers that are lifting their voice and saying, hey, this is what we need. And so, again, hat tip to my sister-in-law, Eileen, and to my entire family for rallying around my brother, David, and also about ra rallying around our, our mother, Deborah during a pandemic, nonetheless. I live in Washington, D.C. And, you know, my uh, older brother and mom are in California. And so, you know, traveling from D.C. to California uh, during the pandemic had been tricky. But, you know, it's tricky for a lot of long-distance caregivers, you know, who may not live around the corner or in the same town as their loved one. And so 
we're going to do everything we can, you know, to uh, make the lives of family caregivers a little bit easier, to offer people a little bit of respite, a little bit of relief as best we can. So what are you doing or what have you done personally to prepare for your own potential caregiving? Uh, obviously, it hit very close to home recently with your, your mother and brother, but preparing for that part of your own life. Uh, and obviously end of life as well. What do the, have those preparations look like for you? And have they changed as a result of working at ARP? I'm not even 40 yet. Don't let the, <laughs> don't let the salt and pepper fool you. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but even though I'm, I'm not even 40 yet, it, it, it's never too early, to your point, to prepare to be a caregiver. Or if worst case scenario happens, if I ever need care from other people, whether it's short-term or long-term. Um, and so, you know, there are certain directives that I've put in place, uh, insurances that I have in place. You know, I uh, have talked to a number of my family members around long-term care insurance. I think that's critically important. And so for everybody that's listening to this, uh, that's a conversation that you may want to have with your loved one before you need it. You want to have the conversation before you need it. Because uh, as I understand it, the older you get, the more expensive it can become. And so long-term care insurance is really important. And having these conversations with loved ones are not easy. I think my mom <laughs> threw off as, as, as much as she could in terms of us, you know, having a conversation about these things that illuminate one's mortality, right? And I think we are more prepared for after having that conversation. Right. You know, I certainly feel a sigh of relief as, you know, someone who's on, you know, a whole nother coast, right? And so if something happens, we've talked about what needs to happen and what her wishes are. And, you know, I've, I've had those conversations with my spouse and for added assurance <laughs> with some of my closest friends, mm-hmm. you know, so that my wishes are, are, are also honored. And having that conversation just it only has to happen really once. I mean, there can be updates down the road, but once you have that conversation, it just opens up for more uh, information and better conversations on this topic down the road. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Chris, I think the more we can normalize having these conversations, you know, it's not about the when you die conversation, (laughs) which I think weirds people out quite frankly, and bless the people over at InWell, who I think have been leaders in the movement to normalize talking about end of life, right? I remember when I got an invitation to speak at InWell a few years ago. Uh, That's where Christina and I first uh, met. And I remember getting the invitation, looking at it and thinking, well, why are they reaching out to me? (laughs) (laughs) And why would I want to go to this conference? And, And initially I thought, wow, you know, why would I want to, you know, uh, sit there and listen to stories about end of life, right? My first mind said, mm, this feels like it's going to be sad. Quite frankly, like it's going to be a Debbie Downer kind of conference. And it was quite the opposite. It was quite the opposite. I left that conference feeling energized. You know, it, it was more about how folks wanted to live as opposed to how people were wanting to end their lives. And so... If you ever have a chance to go to the InWell Summit, uh, it's usually the end of the year in the Bay Area. I highly encourage it. it it's going to surprise you. 
Yeah, it's a, a shame. I mean, for so many reasons with COVID that we couldn't gather in person for events like this, but particularly for Endwell, because I, I really think it it sets the bar very high, particularly for subject matter that can be very difficult to confront and navigate. That's right. That's right. Well, speaking of things that are hard to confront and navigate, I would be remiss if I didn't ask for your advice on how we as individuals can advocate for the aging LGBTQ community? How can we identify discrimination and call it out? What other you know, tips and advice would you have for us? You know, I oftentimes think about an organizing principle that one of my mentors had shared with me many, many years ago when I was a student organizer at USC, University of Southern California, fight on, um, uh, <laughs> as an undergrad. And his name was Willis Edwards, and he was on the board, the National Board of Trustees for the NAACP, and took a lot of us student organizers under his wing. I think of people like Gina Clayton, who, who runs the uh, the SC group in the Bay Area. And Willis Edwards often said, "Do what you can from where you are with what you have." And that is the wisdom I'd like to share with you and with you know all the folks that are streaming this and listening to this. Do what you can from where you are with what you have to make the world a better place, right? And, you know, start with where your feet are. Start from where you stand to make people feel welcome, to, you know, make people, make LGBTQ people feel like they belong, to, you know, make other folks feel like their lived experiences are of value and that they matter um, and that you see them. And I think sometimes we are real quick to want to treat everybody the same. And I believe in equality, don't get me wrong. Oh. Equality and equity are different concepts. And equity says that, you know, maybe some of us require different things in order to achieve the same goals or the same universal objectives, right? And so, you know, I want to encourage us to sort of challenge ourselves and, you know, to root out homophobia and transphobia and in the same way that we root out racism and we, we root out gender inequality and all the bigotry that keeps us from coming together in community, uh, that keeps us from being able to see each other in our fullness, being able to see each other beyond our mistakes or our imperfections. I think the world needs a whole lot more of that. And, you know, I'm not sharing anything, any practices that, that I don't believe in and practice on a regular basis. You know, what's, what struck me was you said it, equality and equity. I, I had not, that's very profound. I had not thought of it in this way as, you know, you've revealed your age, you're 40, so I'm approaching 65, 37, 37, a news alert on how we got here. Dr. Nia is 37. Well, I, <laughs> uh, and you know, I'm 65 in February and Christina is 33 in December. More toward, more toward your age yeah. than mine. But this idea about e equality and equity, you know, our lives experience, life experiences are as it, and for me, as a gay gay man, is obviously a little bit different, and then it would be as a as a Caucasian white uh, gay man would be a little bit different. And I'm thinking that equality and equity, what that what that must have meant to my partner Richard as uh, somebody that was in the Stonewall mm -hmm. era, and 
how we're all kind of fighting for the same reasons, but we're coming at it from different experiences. Mm-hmm. You're right. And I think, I think Stonewall is a great example of it. You know, how homophobia shows up for lesbian, older adults versus gay men or trans men and women or gender nonconforming people or bisexual people. Right. It's different. It's different. And that means that sometimes we need different tactics. We need different strategies. Sometimes we need to put more of an emphasis on certain interventions. And that's okay. And that's okay. And so when we practice equity, when we build an equity analysis into the work that we do, whether you're doing organizing work or, you know, whether you are telling stories, whether you're creating content, whether you're developing policy, it's important for us to understand sort of the impact of those things, you know, on communities that we care about, communities that we are a part of, communities that are supporting uh, our work. And so I oftentimes talk about how in this uptick in consciousness around diversity, equity, and inclusion, that the D&I are relatively uh, simple concepts for people to understand. The concept of diversity, the concept of inclusion relatively easy for folks to understand. When it comes to equity, equity means that we have to govern ourselves differently. It means that we have to take a a hard look at how power and resources are distributed (laughs) and acknowledge that there are some of us that may need more or less. And we need need to have the courage to be able to articulate that and, and to make those decisions and to show up for the least among us, not sometimes, and not even most, most of the time, but every time. You know, we, we at least need to strive for that. And so that's the practice that we've been building at AARP uh, with our Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and so many other state, and so many state offices uh, across the country. We can't do it alone, and we won't do it alone. Folks that are leaders in the racial justice movement and in the gender justice movement and in the LGBTQ movement and in the, the Chicano movement, uh, among others, uh, the trans movement, we can't do it by ourselves. We can only do it together. I told you, Christina, this was going to be fantastic. Yeah, I had a feeling it would be very, <laughs> very informative and just Wow, how grateful I am for the work that you're doing and people like you and the positions you're in. Um, More importantly, that we are in this time of questioning uh, the structures we have in place and being able to fight for one another to get to that point of of true equity. I'm grateful to be living through that moment, quite frankly. I'm grateful to be living through this moment with you, Christina, with you, Mm -hmm. Chris, and with all the folks that are streaming this and there are some of your loyal uh, followers, you know, we can't shape the future by ourselves. We've got to do it together. And, you know, I know there's a lot of noise out in the world. Uh, There's a lot of turbulence out in the world uh, on a range of issues. But I think the, the, the best way that we cut through the noise is really acknowledging the, the humanity in one another, speaking to that, that part of us that desires to live a life of truth, to live a life with dignity. Amen to that. And it's full circle. I mean, I, I feel like that just comes back to caregiving and, and end of life. You know, we all live, we all are going to need care and we're all going to die. Uh, and at the end of the day, that we, 
Okay, sorry, that wasn't a fully formed thought. I really shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but you know what? You know what? You know what? Actually, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. And, 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 and hearing you share that, it made me think about how I've been in touch with my mortality for a long time. Earlier in life, there were a number of folks that, that I uh, was close to that, that died young. You know, I have a brother uh, that died of suicide, you know, when I was 21 years old. My father died of an aneurysm uh, when I was 22 years old. And so I was young, just starting out in life. And these folks that felt like pillars in my life were no longer there. And so there's something about losing loved ones, particularly at a young age, that puts you in touch with your mortality and inspires you to get about the business of making a difference and making yes. your life count. Making you knew where I was going with time this. count. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when I think back to, you know, sort of my Genesis story as a civil human rights advocate, as an activist, as a scholar, it was shaped a great deal by what were some of those early losses. And hopefully the work that I have done and am doing and the work that I'm a part of in some grand ways and some subtle ways pays tribute um, to not just the loved ones that I've lost, but the loved ones that so many of us have lost. I mean, as we sit here today, almost three quarters of a million Americans, almost 750,000 Americans uh, have lost their lives uh, to COVID. Many of those older adults, many of those people of color, I think it's on us to pay tribute to their lives by doing our best to make the world a better place. And that in our government, in our, the private sector and social sector, and I'm glad to play my part. And I hope everybody that's listening feels inspired to do more to play their part. Yeah, I'm glad you, you heard where I was going with that. You read my mind because you're right. It really... It really puts things into perspective when, especially when you lose someone at a younger age. I was 21 when my dad died. So maybe similarly to your experience, I was, you know, burgeoning 20s in my 20s, like coming into my own. And, and that yet there was this profound loss that marked that period of my life as well. It certainly helps you do away with the stuff that's not and help. It, I think it get, helps you be better at identifying the stuff that just doesn't matter and identifying the stuff that does. Uh, and as you said, making being able to make a difference in the world. And also, I wanted to touch on, on what you said about paying tribute to the people that you've lost. It reminds me, years ago, my mom was showing me uh, some sort of notebook, like a child's first five years notebook or something that my, my grandmother had kept when my father was born. And in his first couple years of life, he one of the entries was like, what's something that they, he likes, the child likes to say or uh, often or something like that. And his response was even at the age of four or five, I love all people. And it, when I read that, you know, I just like, it was so profound seeing that and in unpacking, you know, my years of grief, the, the 10 years it's been, that was part of it. It was seeing that. And, and I come back to that as my foundation is like my dad was that person, even into his older adulthood. He was just a kind and courteous and understanding person. And I want to be able to express that love he gave to me, that kindness he gave to others, 
I want to be able to project it onto everybody I meet. Thanks for letting me do a little side there. I had to share it in case you want to know. Thank you for sharing it. We feel we feel the we feel the love and and we feel the presence of your dad. I appreciate you sharing that too. I did not know that story. Yeah, that's a new one. I was not expecting that one to come up, and here we are. <laughs> there you are. What a wonderful conversation. Very much so. Very we, much so. We could go on for hours. <laughs> we could. We could. We could. We could. But uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us today as we get to ready to, to wind down? I just want to really acknowledge the millions of family caregivers out there. This is National Caregiving Month, as mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, and it's no better time to kick off the holiday season than by lifting up the family caregivers uh, that are really the, the, the backbone uh, when it comes to the care system in uh, our country and in places around the world. And they don't do it for the glory. You know, they don't do it for the fame. You know, they do it out of love. They do it as a demonstration of respect. They do it because they don't just believe in dignity, but they practice it. And so uh, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the millions of family caregivers by simply saying thank you and reminding them that those of us at AARP and those of us people of conscience everywhere, that we, we see you, we see your contribution, and we commit ourselves to doing even more to support you as we shape the future. Well said. What a great message for National Family Caregivers Month. Yeah, very, very good. And let all our listeners know how they can find you on social media and all your contact information. Absolutely, absolutely. We want to encourage people to go to aarp.org forward slash caregiving. You can also, if you want to see more of our LGBTQ content, uh, you can go to aarp.org forward slash pride. If you want to learn more about some of the equity work that we're doing at AARP, you can go to aarp.org forward slash equity. And you can always, you know, follow me on Twitter at Dr. Nicordelai, D-R-N-I-I-Q-U-A-R-T-E-L-A-I, Dr. Nicordelai on Twitter. And I'm also on Instagram. The <laughs> IG. Well, Dr. Nicole, <laughs> such a pleasure, such a pleasure. It is a delight to, to see you again and, and have this uh, wonderful conversation. And I, I have a feeling our paths will be crossing again here real soon. Of course they will. And happy holidays to the both of you and all of your, your listeners. Thank you. And to you and yours as well. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And, and you know how you got here is produced and edited by... Bill Oddman of Odd Fox Productions. Social media is by me, Christina Best, with some help from Jennifer Langman, and uh, designs are by Michelle Lacatour. Lacatour. I just I, I every just time we say it, it's Lacatour. I say it. I just got to say it. And how we got here is a production of Caregiving.com and the Whole Care Network, and is sponsored by Anthem. And we are on social media at underscore hwghpod on both Instagram and Twitter. So, Christina, I think this is a great time to thank all of our listeners and to wish everybody a happy holiday season. And we'll see you in January of 2022 with new episodes of How We Got Here podcast. Enjoy your holidays, everyone. Mm -hmm.
How We Got Here. Proudly sponsored by Anthem for caregiving.com and the Whole Care Network.